Father, as we come to your word, uh, by the Holy Spirit, God, would you show us the glory and beauty of Jesus Christ and give to us a, a deeper and more lasting joy uh, than anything else this world has to offer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our text this morning is about joy. It's about our joy, God's joy, what it is that makes Jesus rejoice in us with him. Joy is a theme of this passage. And Jesus had just sent out 72 of his followers to preach the kingdom of God ahead of him. He sent them out with no money, no bag, not even an extra set of slippers. Armed with just prayer and the gospel and his own delegated authority, uh, there will be places that receive them and thus receive Jesus, and there will be places that reject them and thus reject Jesus. But Jesus had been very clear that you guys are lambs in the midst of wolves. Couple this with teaching, uh, Jesus' previous teaching on denying yourself, carrying a cross, blessed are the poor, blessed are those who weep now, and blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you, and all of a sudden, this doesn't seem like the kind of trip that you just can't wait to go on. It doesn't seem like an alluring journey that fills you with an eager anticipation. It seems more daunting, a special forces kind of exercise than it does anything else. Now, I don't know about any of you, but I have never been on a trip like this, going to towns that you don't know anybody, no penny in your pocket, no hotel or Airbnb, and forewarned that we are the lambs and that they are the wolves. And so we might expect on their return that there would be the somber tone and heavy hearts at the duty of evangelism and the necessity of harvest labor and the burden of missions and the difficulties endured and the rejection and discouragement experienced the theme again of these verses post-mission trip is all joy, joy, joy. Hardships and whatnot, the 72 come back utterly elated at all the things that had occurred, bubbling within enthusiasm even, overflowing with excitement. And Jesus here in our text, he uncovers even more joy for them. A joy perhaps their minds may not actually always naturally rise to. This is a passage, I think, which can teach us where true and godly happiness is to be found and perhaps bring us to a place where we often need to be returned to. We begin in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. There are two joys in these opening four verses, one lesser and the other greater. There is joy in seeing the power of God over evil out there. And there is an even deeper joy of seeing the power of God in here within our own salvation. Now, on this short trip, there's been uh, this ongoing realization that Jesus' words are always true. These 72 go out two by two into their respective towns and cities, and they were like sheep amongst wolves. Nothing but the clothes on their backs, slippers on their feet, and they began to heal and to preach. And you can imagine the very first time they had to do either. A sick person coming up to them, and you've never done anything like this before, but laying their hands on this person with faith that Jesus' words are dependable and his delegated authority is with us, like he said it would be, this person is now healed. And the two would look at each other with this amazement, did that just really happen? 
And you can imagine the very first time they had to open their mouths and proclaim the kingdom of God as being here because the king, Jesus, is near and looking at the people of that town because they may have been the very first time they heard anything like it. And some would hear that message and say, please, can you come and stay at my house? I want to feed you. I want to give you a place to sleep, and I want to hear more about this kingdom. And no, Jesus said that this would happen. The Lord of the harvest does provide for us even when our pockets are empty and the two looking at each other again with this joy and astonishment and wonder. And then in other towns, same deal, heal and preach and people say, get out of here. We want nothing to do with you. And know that this is exactly what Jesus also said would happen. And upon leaving that place, slapping your sandals together in judgment because even the dust of that town isn't worthy to cling to you and, and you feel the weight and the severity of the consequence of such a rejection, knowing that what it is we are doing is of eternal significance. There can be this joy deeply and satisfaction in harvest field related things like these, but these are not even the first words out of their mouths. The crowning joy that the 72 have here, the epitome of their ministry collectively is that demons, the demons are subject to Jesus' name. And for them, perhaps this is even more miraculous than any kind of bodily healing. For even 12 disciples were not always able to cast out demons, like in chapter 9 and verse 40. But there's something about demonic oppression and freeing people from it that had been more marvelous to them than the healing and preaching and the experiencing of God's protection and provision. The release of people from evil is what gives to them this great joy and jubilation. And I have a good friend uh, who I've known for almost 30 years now since high school. Grew up in the Catholic Church. And so he had a background pertaining to things uh, of Jesus, which for him uh, seemed to have harmed him more than it did to help him. Because he loved to use that info to poke holes in the faith, which he thought he knew quite a bit about. Came to church with us a few times, and then he would lob insults at us about our own hypocrisy. And I'm sure he had a bunch of valid points. Uh, one time in our 20s, he had actually written me a personal email about how the Christians he knew, namely us, uh, were the very reason why he didn't want to get to know our God. I'm sure many of you know people like this, where their disposition is almost entirely antagonistic to the faith, negative, that even when we were hyped and excited, he would be the one in the corner shaking his head in disapproval. It was quite a few years after that that the Lord brought him uh, to a low point, suffering from panic attacks. He ended up in the emergency room. His work gave to him a leave of absence, and we got to talk. And, and he assumed, you know what, these panic attacks must be about my job, the, the, the work level, my health, the stress, my personal life. And, and I told him, I think you need to get right with Jesus. All of that's just on the surface. And by the grace of God, it wasn't anything I said, because I was bumbling my words, but... By the grace of God, upon hearing the gospel just that one more time, probably the hundredth time at least, boom, it hit him. It's like the shackles fell off. The scales fell from his eyes. He could see, and, and he would tell me after the fact that sometimes he would just stare at the ceiling for hours at night, wondering how it is that God could ever save someone like him. I mean, this is someone most of us had already written off. Cynical guy, negative guy, impossible to push to God, and yet the Lord chose to save him. And to be part of the process of which uh, God did save him is a hit of massive joy as well to see the authority of Jesus in a situation just like that. 
You may wonder why the 72 aren't talking about rejection or hardships or difficulties or places to stay or things like that because all of that is just a drop in the bucket compared to the joy of seeing Satan's dominion over even one person utterly destroyed. The kind of joy of being able to witness that and the kind of joy of intimately being involved in the work of that in the lives of the people, especially of these who were demonically oppressed, obviously in the first century, that joy can outweigh all kinds of suffering. Jesus affirms this response because he tells him in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. It's like a lightning struck at that moment. It's as if every piece of ground you get for the kingdom of God is a piece of ground Satan loses of his own dominion. Acts 26, 18 speaks of ministry like this. It's to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. That's what gospel ministry is. It's opening eyes, darkness to light, Satan to God, a transfer Jesus adds on top of that another visual. His followers are treading on serpents and scorpions. The most famous serpent, the devil in Genesis 3. Scorpion-like creatures represent demonic forces in Revelation chapter 9. I don't think this is about literal serpents and scorpions, just like Satan is not literally embodied in a lightning bolt. There are no serpents in Hawaii, legally. I think the point Jesus is making here is that his disciples are literally stomping out the works of the devil by Jesus' own authority, which is some of what Paul means when he writes in Romans 6.20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's a deep, deep joy when we understand more and more that the devil who has misled humanity for centuries since the garden and has set up shop on earth is currently being defeated. And his power and authority is more and more overthrown with each bit of ministry that we accomplish. That that joy trumps healings and trumps free room and board and outweighs whatever hardships might come along our way because there is a deep happiness when we see people being set free from the bondage of evil. And we can rejoice when we can so obviously see it in others. But sometimes it is, at the same time, that we forget the same power within ourselves. Jesus says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. The first is the lesser joy, which comes from seeing the power of God over the evil out there and freeing people. But there is an actually uh, an even deeper and, and greater joy of seeing the power of God within our own salvation. Let me read to you a, a portion of Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. This is a famous passage. It says there about believers, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's every single one of us. It's not a pretty picture. The devil, our leader, our pattern of life, unbelieving, owned by our passions, destined for wrath. It's the very nature of who we are. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what heaven's going to be like. Ages and ages of exploring God's kindness and grace. You're going to spend your whole life trying to explore the earth and the sea, and you're going to die before you visit every single place. We don't die in eternity, so it takes an eternity, ages upon ages, to explore God's grace forever. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, sometimes it is that we get so caught up with what is happening out there, with the world, with the lost, with the people who need Jesus most, the joy and the joy that can come with that, it it can be very deep. Uh, But sometimes it is that we get so caught up with what's out there that we forget firstly that Jesus has sought us out each right in here and has done a ministry within our own hearts and our own lives. The greatest miracle we ought to notice and reflect upon is not out there, but it's the miracle of salvation given to this sinner, the gift of eternal life in the heart of this dead one. Not that God can do mighty things through you, but that God has done a mighty work in you And it is that we can so often get caught up and enamored with how God gifts this person or that person and how the Lord rescues and redeems and we get to be a part of it. But again, that's not primary. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. It is that we can sometimes get more starry-eyed at hearing about healings and whatnot, massive movements of ministry, revivals, amazing oratory, skill, yada, yada, and dull to salvation. We're upside down. Miracles were worked by the hand of Jesus, uh, Judas. Excitement and buzz felt by him in seeing others understand the person of work of Jesus, and yet he never knew it for himself. And that temporary high that Judas felt in that moment is doing nothing for him today. Charles Spurgeon, he says, grace without talent will save. Grace without talent will save. But talent without grace will only increase our condemnation. Jesus is showing to us, first things first here, how joyfully amazed we should be with his saving grace. There is to be a joy in ministry and evangelism, of course, but not like the great joy of our own salvation wrought by the power of God within our own hearts. Brothers and sisters, if you love the Lord this morning and you want to live your life for the glory of another rather than your own, to exalt Jesus in your body, whether by life or by death, to know that your sins are forgiven as far as the east is from the west is how far he has removed our transgressions from us. Do you understand what has happened to you? By grace you have been saved through faith And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It's not us who did it. Jesus says right here, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. I didn't write my name down there, did you? God wrote it there. And what God writes, no one can erase. We didn't put our names there, so we can't take our names out of there. 
Salvation is secure. It's not our doing. It's entirely the gift of God, and this gift is entirely ours in Jesus. And sometimes I think we lack joy because we haven't sat down and reflected upon this gospel for even five minutes of our busy day, how much it is that God loves us with all of his very being. In this, we ought to rejoice most over anything in all of creation, that we are somehow his beloved and that he is ours. Perhaps it is that we need to each lay down in our beds from time to time, staring at the ceiling, only to marvel that somehow God would save some of us. And so there are two joys in these verses, one less or the other greater. There is joy, real joy in seeing the power of God over evil out there, Satan falling every single time. And there is an even deeper joy of seeing the power of God within our own salvation. We continue in verse 21. And we can experience the happiness as well in seeing what Jesus rejoices in. It says there, in that hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We have in these verses Jesus rejoicing over the grace of our salvation. Jesus is experiencing a deep happiness when he sees people really saved. And as far as I know, this is the only set of verses where we find Jesus explicitly rejoicing in something. We find Jesus weep in other places. We find him filled in with compassion multiple times. The gospel account give us details when he mourns and when he is angry with righteous indignation. But it is only here that we are told what it is that Jesus rejoices over. Jesus rejoices over the grace of his people's salvation. The Son of God is filled with joy when people are born again. And here we're given this peek behind the curtain at the Trinity. Jesus isn't talking to the 72 right here. He is in the Holy Spirit. He's praying to the Father. This is triune joy. And Jesus speaks clearly of grace, that from the wise and understanding these things are hidden, and the little children, to them, these things are revealed. That doesn't mean if you're smart, you don't get to go to heaven. It means that your smartness has nothing to do with your reception into heaven. It means that salvation is all of grace. Human achievement doesn't count towards any of it. Our accolades, our ability to reason and put two and two together, our trophies, our applause, our standing, none of it amounts to anything when it comes to salvation. And so how in the world does anyone get saved? Only and totally by grace. Little kids have nothing to offer and they're getting everything. That's grace. And with the 72 in front of him, rejoicing in the work of demons getting trounced and ignoring the hardships of suffering and rejection because Satan's falling from the skies. And that's what really floats these 72 boats. Jesus is witnessing true salvation in the hearts of his people right before his very eyes that they are actually new creations because they have new affections and a new direction in life, that the old is really gone and the new has really come, and Jesus doesn't praise them. Wow, you really understand it. You guys are really wise. You know, I preach to a lot of people, and a lot of people don't get it. I mean, Judas right here, he didn't get it, but you do. Good job. Kudos. Jesus doesn't praise them because this is not their work. Jesus turns to the Father and praises him because this is his work in revealing these things. 
And yet it is that Jesus also knows his own place, for he says in verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus' authority is not subordinate in salvation. It is the work of the Son as much as it is the work of the Father. There's a union here. Jesus says as much, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father or who the Father is except the Son. It points to this union, eternally existing relationships since before creation ever came into being. Only within the Godhead are the Father and Son known. This is an exclusive knowledge. And yet it is, Jesus says, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus chooses to reveal the love which is exclusive in the Godhead to people like you and me. There's a pre-existing joy in relationship and love between the Son and the Father, which is what Jesus wants to bring lost humanity into. And maybe a lesser illustration might help as a pointer. And I've shared something like this with you guys before. And with each uh, kid God gives to us, I'm reminded of the same. You know, when our oldest was younger, he was looking at a wedding picture of Laura and I on our big day. And his first question uh, was, where am I? I'm not in the picture. Where am I? As if the entirety of creation couldn't have existed until the day of his birth. And I, I told Brian, there's a lot going on before he came onto the scene. You are literally a product of Laura and my, your mommy and daddy's pre-existing love. Now you're welcomed into this, but this had nothing to do with you. <laughs> and now you can be a part of this. And there's a pre-existing love and relationship and, and knowledge. And it's a much lesser concept of what's being spelled out in these verses. Marriage is imperfect, ups and downs, human sin. Not so in eternity past within the Godhead. And with a curtain pulled back, as it were, Jesus is filled with joy in the Holy Spirit as he addresses his Father that salvation is truly given to humanity, not because they earned it, not because they were smart and wise and understanding, no, but purely because what the Father and Son and the Spirit have together is going to be given to them entirely by their grace. That's the purpose of this massive conjunction, and. And what is enjoyed in the Trinity is only enjoyed with God and Anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. This is an overflowing joy, not authored by us, not started by us, not coming to existence because we came onto the scene. It was always there. You know, this idea that God is so lonely and couldn't have heaven without us is utter garbage. There's a joy within the Godhead of which is so vast that it overflows to us. It's not that heaven couldn't be heaven without us. It's the grace of our God is so amazing that he wants his eternal joy to be enjoyed by those who least deserve it. And the joy of this is, is not, well, how come some people get to have it and others don't? No, the entire wonder of sharing in the joy of the triune Godhead is that any of this could be revealed to any person on earth at all. How is it that we get to be a part of what only God enjoys within himself? And it is at this moment in time, in the only set of verses we have, of Jesus explicitly rejoicing like this, that it is his great joy to see the salvation of his people so that they might have him and have the Father and experience what they have in the Spirit, that they may be brought in to the love and glory within God himself for all time since before creation itself. 
It is the Father's gracious will to do this, end of 21. It was his pleasure to do this. And we see in these verses another snapshot, which we don't get all the time in the Bible, of the relationship between the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father, all rejoicing at God's sovereign grace in saving a people who could not save himself, no matter how wise they think they really are. There is great joy to be realized in the Son of God's joy within God that God's happiness is actually in us experiencing himself in loving and grace. Now, before we move on, and I don't want this to distract from the joy of, of Jesus in these verses, but the Bible is very clear that God is sovereign over salvation. And we can respond to that truth in a few ways. We can, I think, which is the intention of these verses, a marvel in, in a deep wonder and amazement uh, resulting in real happiness and, and true joy that God has saved us in spite of us and that none of us would be saved unless he plucked us up. And in plucking us up, we get to see the love of God in his eyes and the joy of his son in the spirit and understand just how much it is that we can rejoice in the eternal and triune God revealing the salvation to us. Or we can respond by getting stuck on why doesn't God reveal us to everyone? And why doesn't everyone get saved? And there is a great mystery in why he does not do just that. J.C. Riley says this, the truth here laid down is deep and mysterious. It is as high as heaven, what can we do? It is as deep as hell, what do we know? Why some around us are converted and others remain dead in sins, we cannot possibly explain. The Lord Jesus Christ supplies the only answer that mortal man ought to give. Even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. There's a strange, mysterious, sovereign will that we can't quite understand, but that does not mean God is not in control of salvation. I fully believe in the doctrines of grace as laid out in the scripture, but that doesn't mean we know why. And anyone tells you they know exactly why, they don't know what they're talking about. We only know that it is God's full prerogative and not ours and that God will do things for his own glory. And the responsibility is still ours to trust and believe in him who sent us this precious Christ. But this also means that we can never look at someone who does not believe uh, what we do and does not come to Jesus like we have with any kind of pride or arrogance in our hearts. And it's so easy to look at the, the, the unbelieving world and be like, oh my goodness, these idiots. Well, that's not true. The only difference between the worst kind of Judas and those of us who do believe, the only difference between the two is an act of grace by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You can't get too proud when it takes the entire Trinity to save one of your souls. It ought to humble us and also give to us security and joy, and it should also condition us in how we interact with the unbelieving world around us. We continue in verse 23, and we'll close with this. As Jesus turns away from his interaction in the Godhead and back to his disciples once more. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You know, we see here finally the joy of utter privilege to see Jesus like we can see him now with the revelation afforded to us. And I don't know that we think about this enough. I mean, we have more than 72 even. But I don't know that we think about this idea enough. We have more than Abraham, more than Moses ever had, more than David had. They left land and home. 
They faced Pharaoh head on. They slayed giants with trust in their God. And we now have this ability to know the same God in ways that they only dreamed of. No doubt these people of faith look forward to a coming Savior, Messiah, and King. No doubt they believed in the resurrection and the life to come. But not with the clarity we have today, brothers and sisters. I mean, our privilege is so great that my youngest son, Trent, he's seven. What you learn in Sunday school today? My Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. He died on the cross for my sins and rose again from death to life. John the Baptist, who got beheaded by a king, martyred. He couldn't even recite that with the same clarity as a seven-year-old kid today. Jesus says in Luke 7, 28, speaking of John the Baptist, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Do we understand our privilege? We get to memorize verses. We know that we got a cross hanging on the wall. There's no crosses hanging on the wall in the first century. There's an enormous privilege we have now. And if we would only understand the amount of gracious revelation we have, I think this will fuel our joy even more, brothers and sisters, and humble us at the same time. You know, in quick application, I wonder what it is that you think is going to give you the most joy in this life. Uh, one of the litmus test barometers is just a simple question. What do we get most excited about? What are, what are we excited about? What are we most anticipating? What do you think is going to give us the most happiness? Ligon Duncan, he says, what you delight in will show you what your, where your treasure is. What you rejoice in will show you what you think is most important in life. It's always true. What we think is going to make us happy, that's what we think is most important. It's always true. It's the easiest question to ask. Knee-jerk, you already know. You already know what you think is going to make you happy. You're already living towards that end. Charles Spurgeon says, you may judge a man by his joy. As a man rejoices, so he is. As a man rejoices, so he is. As a woman rejoices, so she is. It's a simple test. And this passage is showing to us the greatest joy in all of creation, even prior to creation within God himself being shared with us. Do you believe that this joy is all you need? And as we come to Lord's table, we're reminded again and again, Christ's body and the bread and Christ's blood and the cup. It takes all of him to save us. He came to live his life to save us, perfectly unlike us, sinlessly unlike us. And his shed blood is necessary to wash away our sin. We eat and drink in symbolism that we are partaking in Jesus for our own salvation. How do you become a child of God if you're new here? Anyone who comes to God with a childlike faith, I want Jesus. He's the only way. I need to be saved because I'm not all that wise. I need to be washed because I'm filthy in my heart. I need Jesus. I want Jesus. I want God. It's as simple as that. By asking him to be your Savior and your Lord and turning away your back on everything else. By the grace of God, the Spirit can save you that easily. There's no minimum IQ or bar that needs to be set this high. And that's what we are reminded of every time we take the Lord's table. We just eat and we just drink of Jesus. Would you please pray with me? Uh, Father, we recognize that 
it takes all of you uh, to save even one of us. And to see how it gives Jesus joy uh, to see people like us get saved. Uh, Lord, would that be the greatest joy of our hearts today. Pray, God, that you would open our eyes by your spirit more and more to just how much it is you love us in Christ and that everything else uh, would just be strangely dim by comparison. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.